Hi, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? I'm doing well. It's gorgeous out today. It's like, you know, it's either one extreme or the other. It's not- Welcome it to can't spring be, in DC. Welcome to spring in DC. Right. It can't be just like 62 degrees and sunny. Like it's 78 right now. And then next week it's going to be back in the 30s. So- I saw the snow in the forecast. <laughs> That's yeah, so cruel. So mean. The heck, man. So yeah, I was like, oh, I'm going to go out and do my run today and- and I'll, I'll do it once the sun comes out, get a little vitamin D. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm not, I'm not acclimated, but it is so hot. And then I realized, oh, that's because in the last hour, I went from 65 degrees to 76 and yeah, I'm not acclimated. Yeah, it's hot. And that's a good time. Good reminder. We always have to do this every, a couple of reminders that we always give every time the weather starts to get warmer. So wherever you are, if the weather's starting to get warmer, first of all, acclimation like it's going to take us um we say a good two weeks of steady exposure to this type of to the warmer weather so we may get a couple days and then it gets cool again for a couple weeks and then you start kind of start all over so it will take a couple weeks and always go by effort your paces will just like when we get really really cold weather really really hot weather particularly a lot of um runners that we know and that we coach are particularly sensitive to the heat it's just harder to run in the heat body's working harder so adjust by adjust your effort, adjust your pace to go by effort and um, know that it's going to take some time for some people, you know, maybe all summer, you know, a lot of our runners are saying I'm dreading the, the heat that's coming because they know that it's just harder to run in the heat. So that's the, the first warning. And then the second warning is uh, if you have not been running all winter and you've kind of hibernated or you've been cross training or doing some other activity over the winter on a beautiful day like today or yesterday, um, don't jump out and go run, try to run eight miles off the bat. Um, if you haven't been running at all, start gradually with some run-walk intervals, get outside for 30 minutes, do some run-walk intervals, gradually build it up every other day, give your body a chance to rest, recover in between. But we often see in the spring the too much, too soon, too fast injuries pop up. So um, just, just our springtime nice weather reminders. For sure. And especially this year, because I feel like a lot of people have uh, taken on a new cross-training challenge, whether it's cycling, you know, in an indoor cycle, such as the Peloton, or in your case on the Zwift, and maybe not running quite as much as they usually would through the winter, particularly because there isn't necessarily a spring race on the horizon. Uh, so cardiovascularly, you're feeling really fit. So it's very easy to go out there and just feel like you can run. Well, I was going to run three, but it's so nice out. I'm going to run six. And while that may not seem a lot generally, especially if you're a seasoned runner, if you haven't run six miles in six months, that's a lot on your body. So just echoing what you said, use common sense and, and gradually um, start start running and start building and you don't want to injure yourself just as the weather's getting nicer. That is such a bummer. So really do your best to, to modify your workouts to where you are right now. It doesn't mean you're out of shape. It just means that your, your body's musculoskeletal system needs to catch up with your cardiovascular system. Perfectly. So, and, and, and along those lines, make sure your shoes are, are, you know, are still in good condition if you haven't worn them for, since last, if you haven't been out on the roads and you haven't worn them in a while, um, or have, maybe you have, and you've been running a lot over the winter, even on a treadmill or something, make sure your shoes are in good, good, good time to check the springtime, make sure your shoes are in good condition. So start friendly springtime reminders. For sure. And speaking of spring and spring racing, I wish that we could sit here and give announcements of what spring races are popping up, but we just noticed just today, and today is Thursday, March 11th, there were a couple of announcements of spring races that seemed pretty definite that 
have been canceled or have had some modifications. So one is just an hour ago, the Dallas Marathon and Half Marathon. It was supposed to be in May and that was moved to, I believe, uh, November or December. Um, the Garmin Marathon, which was supposed to be in April, was moved to November. And um, also just a modification and something just to kind of look for for races that are still happening, uh, the last city marathon in Toledo just issued an announcement that they are requiring that one produce a negative COVID test or proof of vaccine. And then lastly, the Newport City Council Marathon. Newport City Marathon has not yet been canceled, but the Newport City Council last night voted five to one to rescind the Rhode Island race permits for April 17th. So- Which means the race can't happen. Yeah, the race is canceled. So pay attention. Um, everyone knows this already. We've been at this for a year. We wish that we would, we're at a point now where we turn the corner and we can see that things are more definite, but we are seeing a little bit of a pattern that races are happening, but you still have to be really mindful and kind of be cautiously optimistic. And on that note, Lisa, why don't you talk a little bit about the not sob race? Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of runners are starting to look for backup plans, and, and there are going to be races that, that take place, and they will likely have these um, protocols in place, uh, and one race that we know will happen because it has been approved by the local community is, uh, it's now the Lake Latonka Marathon, but it is the Natsab, which is Boston spelled backward, marathon that I participated in last September. We talked about it in one of our podcasts. The race director, S. Mark Courtney, uh, got approval from the community to come back and do it again in the spring. Now the stipulation is that it is a venue for the virtual Pittsburgh marathon this time. I did it as the venue for a virtual Boston marathon. The community this time said, let's make it the venue for the virtual Pittsburgh marathon. Uh, with the one exception that anybody who participated in the fall version of it is welcome to come back as well because they're keeping it limited. So if you were signed for the Pittsburgh Marathon and you'd like to do your race on a actual course with time, timing and certification, uh, the registration opens on March 17th and uh, we can post the link to registration in our show notes. It is now called the Lake Latonka Marathon. It's limited to 100 runners. It's five loops of a nice rolling, very gently rolling hills course. There's only one, I would say, significant hill, and it's not even um, too terrible. It's in Western Pennsylvania, right near Ohio. And there is a possibility that if it does not fill with virtual Pittsburgh Marathon runners, that there are other runners that may be admitted. So if you're interested, make sure to reach out to the race director through the race registration page and get your name kind of on a wait list. But I highly recommend that race. And again, that one has now been approved by the community just um, this past week and with limited numbers and COVID protocols, masks required at the start and the finish. Actually, one of the premiums that you get is a mask um, in your packet. And it is small enough that it is quite socially distanced and I can speak from experience very safe. So that's that's one option. And there are some other smaller um, marathons that are, are looking like they will take place. But like you said, it's very hard to know until we get close to them. And I think the issue is that um, particularly for marathons that may be in the fall is that race directors need to start planning now. And we're still in this limbo and this point where we don't know what things are going to look like. So while we can all say things should look really much better in the fall, um, we don't know that. And, and a race needs to time to, to plan, to put all of the logistics into place. And that's hard to do now. So race directors are in the position of having to decide now for, for fall marathons. So that is, and that there was an article if you want to talk about in the New York Times that, that discussed exactly that. 
which was actually, I thought, pretty, um, pretty positive and optimistic. Yeah, I thought it was in yesterday's New York Times, and it was an article just basically saying race directors have to start planning their logistics, and race directors of the world marathon majors are planning on having marathons in the fall. It's not an issue of whether these marathons will take place. It's just how will they look. And we already know this, but kind of seeing it in print in the New York Times and hearing it from, hearing quotes from race directors saying, our races will happen. New York City race, race director saying the race will happen. It's just a question of what will it look like. So to that end, um, interestingly, Marine Corps Marathon is taking a different approach. While it's not a world marathon major, it's one of the biggest races. It's the People's Marathon. And what they've decided to do is they opened up registration this week for everyone to register virtually with the hope that the race will not be virtual. And they received a lot of criticism for that, but I feel like that's very transparent. They're saying, hey, we wanna have this race, but we recognize that right now we are not in a position to say we'll have it. So register virtually and your registration will then be moved to a live race if we're able to do that. So I don't think that that's a bad way to go about it either. Um, I did also wanna mention a half marathon that was brought to our attention this week. It's local to us, but it's it's right in the DC area. It's a wonderful half marathon. It's um, to honor first responders, as well as our friend, Fred Chapman, who we talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, who passed away of lung cancer recently. Uh, Fred was a member of Montgomery County Roadrunners Club and um, a, some of his friends organized a half marathon that will be run in his honor this year. It's going to take place on Sunday, May 23rd, and it will be run along the CNO Canal. Um, and we put up in the show notes information about how to register for that. And so if you're local, if you're looking for a half marathon and you live close enough to the DC area, we highly recommend it. It will be organized and safely done. So kind of, that's kind of our summary of the race situation. Um, but a lot of people we know are really eager to start training again for something. And we have a great solution for that. And that is in addition to our private virtual coaching, which we continue to offer. And we have many runners who are benefiting from structured training. We also have opened up our group virtual program, our speed and strength program. And we would love for you to join us while certainly it's usually live and we love seeing our runners in person this year it's virtual. And as a result, if you're listening and you've wanted to do one of our group programs, it's available to all runners regardless of where you live. So check out more information about that on our website. Registration remains open. We'll have guest speakers. We'll have structured workouts. It's gonna focus just like it says on your speed and strength. And like our other programs, we'll be featuring strength workouts that um, will be provided by Kelly Redman, who's been a guest on this podcast. They're terrific strength workouts specifically for running. So if you're someone that has trouble fitting your strength in and you're not quite sure what to do, it's already built in for you. You don't even have to think about it. And we just require to be able to participate safely in the program that you're able to run two, three miles a few times a week as a base. Also for more experienced runners that have higher mileage or are looking to lay a base for a fall half marathon or full marathon, we will have training plans that are at that level. So um, the, the minimum, like you said, is to be able to run or run walk two to three miles at a time. And that's kind of our lowest mileage level schedule, but there will be higher mileage schedules as well. And, and when we used to do this program in person on the track, we found that it was a really great um, base building program for fall longer distance races that you focus on the shorter distance speed and strength. 
um, before building mileage and it really translated to faster marathon times in the fall. So we welcome the, the beauty of doing it as, as disappointed as we are to not be able to do it on the track here. The beauty of doing it virtually is that we can have participants from all over the country and all over the world. So we hope that um, we'll get a really uh, geographically diverse group of participants. So check out our website and the show notes for registration, um, which is open and the program starts uh, in just nine days from now. So the, uh, March 20th. So next up, we are super excited to welcome one of our favorite runners, someone that we've admired for years, um, Bobby Gibbs. So many of you already know who Bobby Gibbs is. She is the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. She was the first woman and was an unofficial entrant. And often people confuse Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer because Catherine Switzer was, of course, the person, and she was on our podcast, she's depicted in the photo of, of Jack Semple approaching her and trying to pull her off the course while she's dressed in sweats and surrounded by men. That's Catherine Switzer. She, of course, had on the bib 261, and she bravely entered and ran the race as the first official entrant when she entered the race as KV Switzer. Bobby, however, one year earlier, in 1966, was the first woman to run the race, period. Bobby will share the story of how she did that, and she was an unofficial registrant. And she shares why she chose to approach the race that day. She went on to win the race, and then she won it again in 1967, about an hour ahead of Catherine Switzer. And then she won it again in 1968. And then, of course, a couple weeks ago, you heard from Sarah Mae Berman, who won the race in 1969, 1970 and 1971. So our goal is to get the last woman on the podcast who actually got uh, women to be able to run Boston officially. And that is Nina Kusick. And so if anyone knows Nina, we would love to reach out to her and get her on the podcast next. But our conversation with Bobby was fascinating. She is a phenomenal woman. She's not just an amazing athlete because I mean, she ran the Boston Marathon in 321, and she'll share how she did that in 1966 in nurses' shoes. And she still runs. She runs about an hour a day. But she's also like a Renaissance woman. She has so many talents. Um, Lisa, what struck you the most about Bobby's just versatility? Just her outlook on life was so inspiring to me. She loves people. She loves her love of running is so um, organic to me. That That is what, you know, we all have our different reasons for for starting to run and for loving running. And running to her is is like, is in soul. And that to me really, um, really resonated, but really uh, just made me uh, understand why she did what she did. And, and she wasn't looking for notoriety. She wasn't looking to, to really, um, you know, make a statement. She was following what she loved. She, she, we'll hear her talk about how when she watched the Boston Marathon for the first time, how she was just in awe of the, the humanity of it. And, and that was what she wanted to experience. And um, so she is just, like you said, I think the best word to, words to describe her as Renaissance woman. She is intelligent. She is insightful. She is um, kind and compassionate. And, uh, you know, when you hear her talk, you just can feel that love of, of, every why she loves running and it's it was um it was just a great conversation so i'm excited to to bring her to our listeners absolutely so without further ado we will introduce to all of you the incredible bobby gibbs lisa i hope you have a great week thanks you too julie bye bye hey listeners are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice 
do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at julieandlisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more. And be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Bobby Gibb, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. It's such a joy to have you on. Well, hi, Lisa and Julie. It's, it's so much fun to be here. Thanks for asking me on. Well, we are um, excited to dig in today and get to know more about you. You are, obviously, we know you as a runner, but you have so many other accomplishments and, and talents in your life. So, um, you know, for, for, for those of our listeners who don't know you and your background in running, why don't you kind of start out with telling us how you started running? How did you come to running? Where, when, did, when did you start running? How did I come to running? Well, uh, of course, I was the first woman to ever run the Boston Marathon in 1966. So how did I get there? Well, I think I started running when I was about two years old. I mean, I, I just loved to run ever since I was a little kid. I mean, I remember as a toddler, we lived in Watertown. My dad would take us to a park. And, uh, well, I was probably around two and a half, three years old. And I, I can actually remember running in that park with the green grass and just and it was this wonderful feeling of the, the world rushing by and being alive. I've, I've always been fascinated with being alive. It's like, wow, I'm alive, I'm alive. <laughs> and I've always had that sense of joy. And when I was running, it just was intensified. As you grew up, um, did you continue feeling that freedom when running or was there a point during your childhood when you kind of looked around and said, wait, uh, it, it's not something, quote, I'm supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, I've always felt that feeling. I still feel it now. I run down the beach full speed and uh, I still feel that leap into the air. And um, yeah, it's true. As I was growing up, uh, of course, all my little girlfriends and I played. We play, We actually played horses, you know, and we, we'd whinny and paw and canter around, you know. We, we were very active. And then I went to camp and I rode horses and we canoed and, you know, and I just loved to run. I always, always, I was very, a sprinter. I loved to run as fast as I could. And then there came a time, probably started in high school, where the other girls, uh, started being more interested in, you know, wearing high heels and makeup, and they didn't want to run anymore, and you know, and they were interested in boys. And well, I was interested in boys, but I never stopped running. I mean, I was running in the woods with the neighborhood dogs because I found something there in the in running in nature. I love nature. I was in love with the earth. I was in love with the air and the sky and. And the stars and everything from an early age. I think partly my dad was a scientist and he was really interested in nature and so was I. I loved and it was fascinated by the fact that it all exists. Like trees grow. I mean, there's no one making trees grow. No one planted these trees. They were just there. And, you know, and, and the more I found out about science, like, wow, we live on this earth, this little planet in this solar system. And, 
at, at night I look up at the sky with binoculars and I'd say, my gosh, you know, this goes on and on and on. And, and I was just fascinated. I learned in chemistry, I learned about atoms and molecules and I think, wow, how did all these atoms and molecules get here? And why, why, why not just one big void? I mean, this has been like a theme song of my life and I'm still singing it like, why? You know, it's incomprehensible just to make one atom. It's such an incredible miracle. And here there's this uncountable numbers of them, you know, why, why? And photons and light. And the more I found out in science, to me, it was, it was a spiritual experience. I mean, to science was a spiritual experience to me. And, and um, it, you know, and, and the sense of nature and existence as a whole. And so uh, running was part of this. Running was a sense of freedom and the sense of being alive on planet Earth here. And so that was when I had, I, I wasn't really connected with formal sports much. We, we played in high school, basketball and field hockey and stuff. And I was always really fast. I loved to run down the field hockey uh, field as fast as I could, you know, but yeah, it's true. So we're guessing uh, treadmill, treadmill running is probably not something that's ever appealed to you. because that Well, is not. in a pinch, it does. I mean, right. in the winter in New England, when yep. I can't get out, I mean, in the old days, I used to get out and I get all muffled up and I put on boots and you no know, layers of clothes and I would actually run in the snow. And I go out and run, and it's quite a workout when you're running in knee-deep snow. But um, then I got uh, to the point where I, I actually I don't have a treadmill, but I had I had a, a, a little four-foot trampoline, and I could run, you know, two hours on a trampoline, watching, you know, some program on t TV or some. Huh. So sometimes it would be uh, I would learn about like mathematics. I would I put on a you know, a video of mathematics, sometimes it would be sort of inter just ent entertainment, some kind of entertainment on there just to, and I'd run for a couple of hours, two or three hours, sometimes on the trampoline in you know, when it was just too icy to get outside. That's so interesting. That's really impressive. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And, um, and you, you grew up in the Boston area, right? In right, right. around Boston. What sure. did you know of the Boston Marathon when you were growing up? I didn't, I had never heard of it. I had never heard of it. I was running through the woods. As I say, I, I lived in Winchester and there's the Fells Reservation, their huge area of woods. And I think it was originally Indian land. And I, I've always felt close to the Native Americans. Uh, they're living on the land in this beautiful way in harmony with nature. And so uh, it was sort of like a sacred spot to me, a sacred place. You know, I'd enter into the woods and there'd be this, this, this sense of majesty and, and in, in the woods. And so that's where I was running. Did you find it harder as you um, grew older, you probably felt sometimes more the challenges that one faces as they grow into adulthood. Did you find running to be therapeutic during that time for you? Or did you at the same time find it to be frustrating in that you wanted to do it more, but it wasn't necessarily comporting with the identity that others were encouraging you to conform well, to. When I was, I was at tough school, special studies, studying biology and physics. And, um, and I met a guy who ran track and field and he said he ran five miles. And I said, five miles without stopping? 
You know, it's like I, I was a sprinter, you know, and so I was intrigued. And so he and I started hanging out. We were sort of running buddies. And, uh, and pretty soon I was running with him on his training runs. And it took me a while to get into shape enough to keep up with him. And I would run. We ran all over greater Boston and out in the suburbs and the woods and across the frozen lakes in the winter time. And so that was my running. And then one time I was talking with, a, I was visiting my high school, one of my high school friends and her dad said, well, since you love to run so much, you ought to go out and see the marathon, the Boston Marathon. I said, what's that? And they said, oh, you know, there's about, you know, two, 300 guys and they, they run uh, the marathon every spring on Patriot's Day. Of course, Patriot's Day was the day the shot heard around the world, the beginning of the Revolutionary War. And, and my ancestors actually go back to that. One of my ancestors fought in that war. And so I was really intrigued. And, he said, and I said, well, how far? 26.2 miles. 26 miles without stopping. You know, I couldn't believe it that somebody could run. So I went out with my dad and we watched the race. And I fell in love with it. I mean, it was totally irrational. Nobody ran. There was men didn't even run. There was nothing. I mean, President Kennedy was begging people to, uh, or had been. He he had recently been assassinated. But uh, that was a really rough time. And but he he had been saying to people, why don't you get out and exercise? I mean, you become a nation of couch potatoes. Come on, come on, let's go out and. So I was thinking, okay. Uh, this would be a great thing to do. And I just fell in love with it. It was um, no women ran. For a woman, a grown woman to run, God forbid, in public, God forbid that she should perspire, was just uh, outside the social norm. You just didn't do it. And there were hardly any women professionals in middle-class society. I mean, the man was the breadwinner. The woman stayed home and so forth. And I wanted to be married and I wanted to have children, but I didn't want to just stay home and, and wash dishes and clean. I had a mind. I wanted to do them. I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to, you know, get to, you know, who knows? I wanted to be who I was. And I mean, this is the whole tragedy of prejudice. You have a whole group of people and, and, pre and you have this stereotype about them. And because you belong to a certain group, you're not allowed to be who you are. You're not allowed to fulfill your own destiny. Destiny. You're not allowed to go to school. You're not allowed to, um, well, you know, practice medicine. They they told me I was too pretty. I'd upset the boys in the lab. I mean, so there was so this was the sort of thing I was up against, and you can hardly believe it now. But um, I so I had already been fuming about this. And, but when I first saw the marathon, I wasn't thinking man or woman. I just fell in love with it. I mean, I fell in love with these people with this, this vision of what it is to be human, this kind of endurance. It's like it harked back to when we were running across the plains of Central Africa. And, you know, it's something so human, that sort of bipedal kind of motion. And uh, I just, I said, wow. I'm going to run this race. And I had no idea why. It made absolutely no sense. I wasn't even thinking of making a social statement when I first started. It's just I fell in love with it. I, I'm one of these persons that I've 
I love, when I love something, I do it, I follow it. So walk us through from the moment that you watched the Boston Marathon for the first time and fell in love with it. What transpired between that moment and when you yourself towed the start line in 1966? Well, in 1964, that's when I first saw it, uh, literally the next day I started to train. I had no idea how to train. I was wearing nurse's shoes. I had worked as a nurse's aide in the hospital and there weren't very many sturdy shoes for women that you could run in. They were also these flimsy little pointed things and you're supposed to go like this and be so feminine and weak and stupid. And, you know, I said, I can't be like this. This is, if this is what being a woman is, I'm not going to be a woman. I'm just, I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to be. I'll, I'll go to Canada. I'll live in the woods with my dogs and, you know, my horses, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play this role. I could see my poor mother. She was a beautiful, intelligent woman. And she was just so unhappy and frustrated. I mean, she loved my dad and she loved us kids. But she, her dreams, she had lost her dreams. She, you know, she just, she was just so unhappy with this life. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Then it was no freedom. I mean, you couldn't even have a credit card in your name if you were a woman. And so I was already fuming about this, but I found in running, maybe at, at first it was kind of an escape. Like I was harking back to a time, uh, well, when Greek goddesses ran through the woods. We just wanted to take a quick break to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, Ufos. If you're a longtime listener, you know that Ufos shoes are an integral part of our recovery. And we've been wearing their new boots all winter long. Ufos are the original recovery footwear brand, helping to reduce load and stress so your body can rebuild throughout the day. Often the aches and pains we're feeling in our feet, ankles, knees, and even our hips can be due to not wearing supportive shoes. We wear our supportive running shoes when we're running, but what do we wear when we're not running? Ufos reduce shock impact on the body by 37%, making it easier for your body to recover faster. Stay tuned to our podcast and social media channels this month for a chance to win a pair of Ufos and check them out now on their website at ufos, O-O-F-O-S.com. So what did, you, what did your training look like? You know, you went into it not, like you said, you're running in nurses' shoes. And how did you, how did you build that? This was two years before you actually went to run it. What did, how did you approach it? What did you, did you I think no, about how do I train? And no books. I had no coach. Right. No, no watches. No, no, no yeah. online resources. I figured, nothing. I said, yeah, how did you? Well, I'm just going to try to run further every day. You know, so I, I get, you know, and I had a map of the fells and I could figure out the woods that is, and I could figure out, okay, it's two miles the, to the lookout tower. So, you know, I'd set out and I'd run two miles and I'm gonna run to the top of that hill, you know, no matter what, I just, I'm going to run this determination and I was gonna run to the top of the hill and I run to the top of the hill. And then, and then I tried to, I tried to increase it every day, but that didn't work because after about 10, <laughs> 10 days, I was, completely poop because I ran every single day, rain, snow, sleet, heat, anything. I was out there running, never missed a day. In and, your nurse's shoes. Uh, so finally I figured, no, some days I'm just gonna have to walk, you know, or walk, run, or do a little slow. So I sort of fell into a pattern of doing, um, well, I guess what you call hard, easy, hard, easy, hard, easy kind of uh, 
running, but gradually I built up over time. I built up my distance and I didn't know I was going into the unknown. You know, I thought, well, am I going to have a heart attack? Am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to die out here? <clears throat> I had no idea what I was doing, but I was doing it. <laughs> and uh, so that, so that was uh, 1964. And then in the summer of 1964, um, and uh, <laughs> the summer of 1964, I took my family's VW bus. I think you've probably heard this story, but they, they had gone off on sabbatical. My dad, of course, was a professor at Tufts, a professor of chemistry, and they had gone off on sabbatical to England. And uh, I saw my chance for escape <laughs> or escape again to something. I, um, <laughs> I was actually living with a really nice couple and their three children. I was sort of the nanny of the children. And I had this VW bus. And after school ended, I worked at a camp. I worked at a Syrian Lebanese camp for a month and I got enough money, I think $500, to make the trip across the country. I mean, this is back when coffee cost like five cents a cup. Okay, so $500, whoa, that's, that's a lot of money. Where did, where did you take that VW bug? Where did you? <laughs> I was in love, I was, just, I was in love with the country, in love with the earth. I went from Massachusetts out across the whole country and I love to sleep outside. I love, as I'm telling you, I love the earth and I love falling asleep and I was, I learned how to camp when I was at camp, I knew how to make a lean-to, how to make a fire. I could take care of myself in the woods pretty well. And uh, so I just headed off when I had a Malamute dog, puppy, a puppy named Moot. And she's a really smart dog, like a wolf. She had yellow eyes. I mean, she's just, a, I was in love with this dog. And so we started off together across Western Massachusetts and we drove across and we got out to Western Mass and I found some beautiful woods out there. And I drive off a little road and I'd make camp for the night and I'd, I'd fall asleep looking up at the stars with my binoculars. You know, I was in love with the stars. I liked the binoc it was like the stars were my friends. I mean, oh yeah, there's, a, um, I don't know, whatever it was. Of course, the we don't have the, it, you know, well, say there's the Big Dipper or something like that. And, um, so I'd sleep out at night and then I'd go on across New York and sleep out at night. And each place I was, I'd run during the day. So I'd run, you know, how many miles or how many hours, I didn't know. But, um, and then I'd get in my car, drive another few hundred miles west all the way across. You literally ran across the United States before <laughs> yes. that was a trend. Yes. Did you ever worry about your safety, um, being a woman by yourself in your I VW bus? I never did. I mean, people were friendly in the 60s. It was amazing. Um, we had a sense of camaraderie. We didn't have the drug problems we have today and so forth and so forth. And uh, people on the whole were friendly. Of course, I was careful. I was aware that there are some, you know, bad guys out there. Uh, but I was pretty careful and I had my faithful dog with me. You know, she's very protective. <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, people were nice. And then I'd, I'd eat at coffee shops and the truck stops along the way and talk with people. And, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was really neat. So that's what I did all across the country, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. 
I go up over the Rockies. I'm running up the Rocky Mountains over the Great Divide, down the other side. I'm running up the Sierra Nevadas, down the other side. I'm running and then across the Golden Gate Bridge. And I see these redwood forests for this, these beautiful redwood forests. It's just incredible. And I go and I find this beach up along Stinson Beach, up along the coast north of San Francisco with Moot. And I dive into the Pacific Ocean. It's like, whoa, this is amazing. 3,000 miles and I dive into this ocean and I'm running up and down the beaches. Incredible sense of freedom. And, uh, and so that was, that was how I trained basically for the marathon. What a that's great, a long that's way around your question. Yeah, but that's an amazing <laughs> adventure. Not, not many people can say that they've, that's how, and that was, you know, that was your training at the time. That you know, was my training, yeah. That was, that was training. So, how did you, so tell us then you ended up back, back in Boston to run the marathon. Right. How did, did you, did you try to enter the marathon? Like what, what, what did that look like? And, and, and how did you get back to the start line? I had to get back to Boston for classes, you know, <laughs> reality strikes. Yeah, okay, down to earth, girl. You know, okay, now I have to get back to classes. <clears throat> so I got back and uh, I was gonna run in 1965, um, but I, uh, running uh, in the snow, it was like, I guess probably March maybe, and there was like ice and snow and I had the whole bunch of dogs and we were crossing a main street and cars were coming and the dogs were getting out into the road and I was trying to go out into the street and herd them back onto the sidewalk and I fell. I didn't see the curb, it was under all this slush and snow. I fell and I sprained both ankles and I actually crawled home. You know, I was crawling along, I'm crawling along and the dogs all thought this was a real fun game. Oh, they're all very excited, wagging, trying to lick my face and oh boy, this is fun. Of course, the people in the passing cars looking at this girl is really strange. We knew she was strange, but this is really, this is really strange. So I'm crawling home. I get back to the house I was staying where I was taking care of these kids. And, uh, you know, so Gail, Gail who's my friend, uh, who's the mother of these kids, you know, helps wrap up these huge swollen ankles. And, and then the next day I'm out cantering around on crutches still training for the Boston Marathon. She's going, there's no way you're going to run any marathon. So it's true. I watched the marathon on crutches that year, but I continued my training the next year for another year. And uh, I ended up um, in San Diego. I actually married the guy I'd first run track with at Tufts and, and moved. He was in the Navy. The Vietnam War was going on and they were going to draft him. So he joined the Navy and he so he was stationed in San Diego. So I moved out to San Diego and I was living in San Diego and doing my last training on the beaches of California and the mountains around here. Uh, here, that's where I am now. And, uh, and I ran into Bill Gukin, who was a part of the uh, San Diego track and field people. And um, he said, well, you've got to apply for this thing you know, and so I said, okay. So I wrote in my full name, not disguising my gender, just no. And I get a letter back from Will Cloney and he says, uh, women are not physiologically able to run marathon distances. The longest they're allowed to run is a mile and a half and AAU rules. It's Boston Marathon is a men's division race. And of course, women aren't qualified to run in men's division races any more than 
vice versa. And uh, I was really upset. I can remember, I was like, here it is again. You have to be in this little tiny box because you're a woman, you belong to this class of persons that doesn't, doesn't have any rights. And I said, this is a democracy, you know, <laughs> my George. So I, I remember I just, you know, threw the letter across the floor and I started running and I ran and I ran and I ran. I ran all the way up to Del Mar. I don't know how many miles that is. And I got there. I actually spent the night on the beach. I was so, I was so upset. I spent the night on the beach. And the next morning I woke up and I said, I have all the more reason to run. I said, I have now. I have to run this race because uh, this is going to change the way people think about women. Because if I can prove this mis, uh, misunderstanding or misconception or false belief about women um, wrong, then that's gonna throw into question all the other false beliefs about women. Like they're not smart enough or to go to medical school or law school or whatever it is. They, and so then it became, then I knew it was gonna be a social statement. And I took a bus back uh, the, and I got there the day before the race. My parents thought I had gone round the bend. They were really worried about me. He's like, <laughs> and my dad went steaming off the next morning and, and my, I convinced my mom who had spent her entire adult life trying to get me to conform to these same deadening norms that had stifled her life uh, for your own good, dear, it's for your own good. <clears throat> and no, it was not for my own good. And so for the first time, she was on my side. I said, mom, don't you see it's gonna help to set women free? And it's like, she finally got it. She got it and she agreed, she drove me out to the start. We went out to Wellesley and drove out across, out of, along the route. And I'm going, whoa, 26 miles is a long way. <laughs> it's funny, that's how we feel every time we take the, the buses from Boston to Hopkinton. We always think, wow, right. this is a really yeah, long, you're gonna a long time thing. to get back. Yeah, yeah. oh, I forgot just... to mention, I had run. I was running 40 miles at a stretch when I got this letter because I had run um, the Woodstock 100 mile um, horse event. I had run, it was 100 miles in um, Vermont. The, the fall before I went to California. Uh, so, so I had run 40 miles the first day. So I knew I could run 40 miles. And I said, now I know that I'm ready. And then the, I ran 25 miles the next day, but my knees were sore. My knees were, and I didn't want to injure myself. I said, oh God, I know I don't want to push through because I don't know where the dividing line is between just pushing through discomfort and where I'm really hurting myself. Well. So I said, okay, I know, okay, that's 65 miles. That's, I know I can run the Boston Marathon, no problem. So when I get this letter, I'm running 40 miles at a stretch and I get this letter, you can imagine. So anyway, but that was just an insert here. So, um, so, so she dropped me off in Hopkinton and I, I knew if they saw me, they'd keep me from running, they'd throw me out. And, and you know, I was afraid I might even be arrested. I mean, I knew I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do. And I had, as you probably know, my brother's Bermuda shorts and the, I had a blue hooded sweatshirt and my hair pulled back. And, and, and you were wearing up. a bathing suit, were you wearing a bathing suit? I had suit a top? black top bathing suit. I'm uh, fascinated by that. <laughs> That's my underwear. <laughs> and, uh, and um, 
And so uh, she dropped me off on the outskirts of town and, and uh, I ran around town looking for how am I going to get into this thing. And I found a bunch of bushes as close to the start as I could. And I figured, well, I'll, that's where I'll hide. And then it was still, I don't know, an hour before the race. So I went out behind some houses. I thought you had to warm up. We after three days on a bus uh, and I had eaten, my mother made roast beef and apple pie for dinner. I had no, knew nothing about carbo loading. And so I was out behind these buildings warming up for about 40 minutes and then uh, the men started gathering and then in those days they started in a pen and so I crouched in the bushes and then when the starting gun went off I waited till about half the pack left and I jumped into the middle of it and started running and uh, and uh, it, for, it, for a few minutes the guys around me didn't know and then I, I've told this story so many times, you probably heard it, but the guys behind me studying my anatomy and could realize I was a woman. I, I really have to give these guys credit. They're very, they know, I don't know, they, they really spotted me right very quickly. And is that a girl? Is that a girl? And I laughed and smiled because I wanted to keep this upbeat. I didn't want this to be some big, uh, I wanted to run with these guys. I wasn't trying to beat them. I wasn't against them. I mean, these guys are my brothers. I want to run with them, you know, and uh, be part of this thing, just to be part of this thing. And uh, and so I smiled and laughed and they said, oh, it is, it's a girl. And, and I told them I was getting hot, but I was afraid if I took it off, they'd throw me out. And they said, we won't let them throw you out. It's a free road. I mean, they were protective and, and nice. And we were talking, we talked along, we were running down towards Framingham, you know, we're, and it's kind of, it's downhill and, and we're talking and it's so easy, like seven miles or six, you know, oh, this is great. I could run forever. And, uh, you know, the, this guy, Alton Chamberlain was talking, he was from Connecticut and we talked and on and off about this and that. and and. And I was conserving my energy because I, I knew that I had to finish this race and run it and run it well. If I had fallen over or God forbid, you no know, fainted or something, I would have set women back another hundred years, but I, or 50 years or whatever. But I, uh, so I had all this weight of, I had to finish and, and do it well. And so, so I was holding back, holding back, holding back, not sure you know, but, but I, we were on a pretty good pace. Um, we were on actually sub three hour pace for most of the race. And uh, you know, we ran in, and then we got to Wellesley. Wellesley, of course, the women's college. And the w women, in those days, they came right out into the street and they made this tunnel and they touched hands with a, a row of uh, women on either side. And you had to go through the tunnel of love as the men called it, and the screech tunnel as the women called it. And so you kind of break down like this and you're going by and this, this incredibly deafening screeching. So, um, so they knew I was coming because it was the, um, the, pre the, the press, uh, Jerry Nason had spotted me way back at the beginning of the race and Ashlyn, he said, oh my God, there's a girl running. And so he was, he was calling ahead and telling everyone there's a girl in the race and it was being broadcast on a local uh, radio channel where I was along, along the race. So the woman, Diana Chapman Walsh, 
was then a student. She later became president of Wellesley and she wrote a really nice article in 1996. And in 1996, she said, we were looking for, you know, we, we, we felt that this was gonna really change things. Uh, and we were all excited, we were looking for her. And then when I came into view, they let out a huge screech and it's screeching and jumping and tears running down their eyes. And, and I I've told this story before, so you probably heard it, but there's this one woman standing over to the side in kind of a overcoat with a whole bunch of kids and holding kids. And she's going, Ave Maria, Ave Maria, <laughs> you know? And I, I look at her, you know, and this tears coming down my eyes and this tears coming down her eyes. And it's like, I really felt at that moment that there was, that was a pitiful moment, that there was no going back. After that, you know, that they're not gonna put us back in the, into the cage again, into the bottle, back into the thing. It's like, and then, so I ran on, uh, I ran on all the way. And then, but, and I'm, Heartbreak Hill, I mean, compared to the Rocky Mountains, Heartbreak Hill wasn't that, wasn't that big a deal. It, it, it actually was a relief to be going up instead of down, because the, the course is down, down, down. Um, but the problem was that I had bought new run, running boys running shoes. Bill Gukin, my friend said, well, you can't run in those heavy clawed up or nurse's shoes. And um, he said, you gotta buy light running shoes. So I, bought, I had bought light running shoes, but I, I hadn't broken them in. I didn't know you're supposed to break them in. I guess in those days, uh, I'm not sure now, but you, you break these shoes in over a period of time. And so they were, they caused horrible blisters. So I had these horrible bleeding blisters. So as I was coming down the other side of Heartbreak Hill, <clears throat> my feet were killing me. We we're getting worse and worse because the blisters were rare. No, it's now down to the skin. It's now down, now it's bleeding. I mean, it, it was just killing me every step of the way, but I knew I couldn't stop. I also didn't know you're supposed to drink water because in high school they said, you don't drink water because they'll give you cramps. So I went tearing by all uh, the water, it was a hot day. And, and uh, you know, these people are drinking water and pouring it over their head and so forth. And I'm just running nothing straight through, probably pretty dehydrated. Although I was used to running in the desert in California. I mean, I was used to running. And um, so I get down there, my feet are killing me and my pace drops way off. Like you get to Cleveland Circle and now I'm tiptoeing. I'm tiptoeing and my three, three hour marathon is lost. And I'm just, and I thought, oh God, I hope somebody's there at the finish when I get there. And now I'm going, oh, um, uh, just killing me. And then the Sitco sign up there and I go, oh God, it seemed like about five centuries to get by this Sitco. And then you turn, uh, you turn on the Hereford Street and, and then you know, turn in those days, it, it finished in front of the Prudential Center and I'm coming down. So I picked up my pace for the last thing, but there were people hanging out of the windows and drinking beer. And, and I get there and pe there's people in the bleachers and the press is there rolling and, and the bleachers. And I come running down that final stretch. Now oh, I just had the sense of, wow, two years of being absolutely focused on running this race and then to, to do it and to come, come through at the end and run it. And then I get to the end and somebody throws a blanket over me and everybody's, you know, they're cheering and happy. I thought I was gonna get in jail for this, you know, 
cheering and happy. And the governor of Massachusetts comes down, Governor Volpe comes down, shakes my hand, and then the press closes in and they want to know who I, you know, what they had already figured out who I was because the message had come in. And, and the runners near me, way back in Ashland, had said, Well, what's your name? Where are you from? Oh, yeah, Bobby Gibb. You know, it's uh, my parents, uh, Dr. Tom Gibb, and they're from Winchester and so forth. So they already knew who I was and they were tracking me. And so they were asking me all kinds of questions. And I was just so enthralled meeting the press. I had never met anyone from the press before. I was as interested in them as they were in me. And so, and then uh, my friends like Alton, come on, uh, let's go to the post-marathon stew. I get to the door, the post-marathon stew. And the guy says, no women allowed. And I'm going, no women. And the guys are going, hey, but she just ran the race. She's our friend. No, I'm sorry, no women allowed. And so, you know, so then I, uh, there it was again. And so uh, then I, I, and then I went home, I got a taxi and went home from there. And I get to my street, uh, Sergeant Road, and the, the car is parked all up and down the street. And I think somebody must be having a party. And I get to my house and they're all at my house. It's the press and my parents who thought I was nuts. I mean, they call the family psychiatrist, you know, we got her here. She's, <laughs> she's, she's delusional. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, so there are my parents, you know, standing there like totally bewildered and all these people, the phone is ringing, congratulations on your daughter. You must be very proud and all this. And, you know, my dad puts his arm around him. Yeah, we should do, we knew she could do it kind of thing, you know, right? <laughs> and, 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 That's awesome. Your dad's proud of you once the press comes. He's making yeah, a yeah, statement. It's those gib legs, dad, I say. And so it's like, uh, it, it, it just, it was like one of these paradigm shifts, you know, where everybody thinks one thing and then it, it switches. And not only my family switch, my family, but the whole world. I mean, this went out. They had friends in Malaysia. They'd been on wire. I, you know, said, "Yeah, you see, your daughter just ran the marathon." You know, it went out really, literally around the world. The Japanese won that year. There were four Japanese runners. I mean, it was in Japan. It was all over the place, and uh, and it really, it was like a seed. It was like planting a seed. Uh, it's like I'm, I'm this kind of person who likes to go out. I'm still like a pioneer. I, I like to go out into the wilderness and, and carve a path, you know, and then the people who come behind me, like Switzer, they can build the highways and, and they can do the, all the, I don't know, make it official, like Nina Kusik, she is an absolute doll. I absolutely adore her. She is the one that brought the petition to the AAU in uh, 1971 uh, to uh, sanction or approve of women's marathons. And then of course, fittingly, she won in 1972, the first woman to officially, or the first, to officially win an official women's division marathon. And up until then, we were known as the pioneer women's race, so. After that first race, did, did you immediately think, I'm coming back next year and I'm gonna do it again next year? No, I immediately <laughs> thought, how am I gonna get up the stairs? <laughs> <laughs> It's time, timeless. I, I have I have a question. Um, 
<laughs> I have two questions. My first question is, um, did anyone from the Boston Marathon, the BAA, or the AAU, after your win, you finished in 321, you sh clearly show that women can run marathons. Did anyone from either organization contact you after you yes. crossed the finish line? Jock Semple. Jock Semple is a, a sweetheart. I absolutely love him. He's been got given a lot of bad press, and that is totally wrong. The marathon was his baby, you know? And um, of course we had that, I uh, had this uh, wool blanket that they had given me. It's still around my uh, shoulders when I got home. And so my mother and I went into his office. He had an office up over North Station, that uh, Boston Garden area and had an office there. And we went in, we had a long, a long chat. And of course he's from, Scotland and my grandfather was from Scotland. My father's father was born in Scotland. And so um, we talked about Scotland. He said, I have nothing against women running. Uh, my mother was quite an athlete in her day. I mean, you know, he was really a nice guy. He gets a lot of bad press. Uh, he uh, later on, he felt he was defending his, you know, defending the rules and defending the honor of his marathon and so forth. Um, but uh, he he so yeah he, he we we struck up a nice relationship. What did he say to you? Um, did he say I I wish that I could make it official, but I can't? Like what what was his position then? And and his how position did he... was he would love to have women running, but they had to do it according to the rules, and the rules were that women are not qualified to run in men's division race any more than a man can run in a women's division race. And here's the rub. If there's an unqualified run, runner in the race, that jeopardizes the accreditation of that race. And it would negate all the running times of the legitimate runners, which is why he was so upset. He was about to lose the accreditation that next year with that incident, you know, that relative negative incident. Uh, uh, he was defending the rules and the accreditation of his race and the running times of the legitimate runners. And so I, I was actually running in what they now call the women's pioneer division race. I wasn't even running in the men's division. I was running in my own. I was the women's division race basically in 1966. And in 1967, there were two of us in the women's division race and in 1968, uh, there were five of us in the woman, the pioneer women's division race. And then, of course, Sarah May in 1969, so forth. And at that point, I was um, finishing up college in California and uh, applying to medical schools. That's when they told me I was too pretty. And so that I, I later after that, I decided to go to law school and fight the you know, take up some civil rights cases and some, I was going to be an environmental civil rights lawyer. And I ended up actually doing intellectual property law well, with my scientific background, because I had studied, I was pre-med the whole way. I, I knew, I mean, I studied math was my minor. And, I, and so I liked doing the intellectual property law. And I did that for 18 years later on in the eighties. And through all of this, did you garner strength from your experience as a runner and being able to do what you did and defy the odds three years in a row at Boston when things like that happened to you with respect to being told you can't be a doctor because you're too pretty? Or did you ever feel like you garnered strength from your experience as a runner? Well, I've always had this sense of outrage 
uh, at unfairness, whether it's unfairness to me or unfairness to someone else that I see that somebody or some group or something is being treated in an unfair way. And so I think, <clears throat> but I also feel that there are ways of bridging the gaps between people or among people and uh, ways that are more effective than fighting. And, and that's why when I ran the marathon, I did it in a nice upbeat kind of, um, not, you're not my enemy, you're my friend. And you know we can do these things together, like men and women can be friends. We can, the stupid war between the sexes is a waste of time. And no, that it's ridiculous. I mean, I love men. I mean, some of my favorite people, my dad, I love my dad, my son, my brother. I mean, this whole thing that you gotta hate men, you know, no, 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 this is now you're doing to them what what they what you claim they're doing to you. You're putting in, in this this whole thing about typology and generalization. It's like one dog bites you and all dogs are bad. It's like one, it's like. Uh, can we please get over this typology stuff? It's who you are as a person that counts. When you looked at the fact that women were alienated or take left out of the running space, you didn't look at it as an opportunity to be angry at those who already occupied the running space, i.e. men. No. No. Instead, you looked at it as an opportunity to say, I'm going to try and join them and I'll see what happens. Right. You weren't afraid to fail. You got out there, you started running, and you quickly realized that there was change. It was on your shoulders. And in order for you to be able to start to institute that change, you had to finish what you had started. But many people don't have the courage to think that way and to even start. So what to me is so fascinating about your story, and similarly Sarah May's story, is that there was something about you at that time, you had the courage to take that risk and to say, this is a good thing. And even though it doesn't conform to what's expected of me, I am going to make positive change by taking this risk. And that's where change come from, comes from. And that's why we're so grateful to you because you're setting an example. We constantly need to challenge norms. We constantly need to look around and see who continues to be left out of important conversations and spaces. And if there weren't for people like you who think like you, change would not happen. And that's, for us, why we're so grateful for you and what you've done. And, and even now you're, you continue to be a pioneer of change. And can you share with us a little bit about what you've done artistically? Um, because you are such a Renaissance woman. We've now covered science, your athleticism, and you also are someone who's, an, who's um, very creative and artistic. So can you share with us a little bit about what you've done with your artistic talent? Well, my art, my art like my painting, like you can see, this is sort of like, like I've gotten into this real abstract stuff. I don't know if you can see that one up there, but it's it, like- it's uh, Gorgeous, gorgeous. It's, uh, these, this comes from nature. I mean, this is me, I'm in love with nature. I mean, this is, and it's sort of the primal forces of the universe interacting with each other. And so that's the paintings and my sculptures, I do mo a lot of athletes. Uh, and, um, athletes and also portraits of people like bronze heads. I mean, I love people. I love people's faces and I love doing, like I'm almost like in love with the person that I'm doing when I'm 
doing again it's like that feeling of it like it's it's like it's coming through me it's like like the paintings and the sculpture it's coming through me it's not me I mean it is me but it isn't it's like and so the bronze yeah I just did one for um Hopkinton to put it a life-size one uh bronze sculpture there and they wanted one of a woman and I wanted to do Joan Benoit and then she, she said she didn't want her sculpture done, and I said, "Oh, they wanted they wanted me to do." Uh, well, I mean, the people of Hopkinton wanted the sculpture, and I kept saying, "No, it should be Joan Benoit, or it should be just a generic woman, or something." And they said, "No, we want a sculpture of you." And I said, "You want a sculpture of me?" Oh, how embarrassing! And so I said, "Okay, <laughs> if that if that's what you want." And so I. <laughs> I'd never done this before. It's like, I'm looking at my hands, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at my legs. Oh yeah, okay, we get that. And then we got the Bermuda shorts, and then, you know, the bathing suit and everything. And it was really funny uh, doing this. <laughs> I, I don't know, it, in order to do a life-size sculpture, well, um, I did a small one, we could call a maquette. It was about this big. And then you take it to a, a, a 3D, uh, someone who does uh, not 3D printing, but 3D projection. And so they sent, they, they take a 3D photograph of it and they send it, it happened to be to California. And um, there's a, a place, he, they do a lot of stuff for movie sets. And so they do it out of st something like styrofoam. So that they to put the, this um, sort of armature of styrofoam inside uh, and then and then the artist puts clay on. So I get this huge box from California, about three feet by three feet. And, and, and it has, and I felt like it was like me, like this was like an urn or like, like this was, this was my skeleton. Your body so, coming to you. you know, I'm, I'm pulling these. <laughs> Assembling these, your body. Yeah, these, these things in there, it's in all in parts, you know, the legs and the arms, it's all in parts. And, uh, and now I get this thing out, it's the weirdest feeling. And then of course, then you put the clay on, you put all the detail in and, and so forth and you build it up. Yeah, it was a weird experience. And th but this fun. is the, the Bobby Gibb Marathon sculpture project that right, you know, right, right. I've heard about it. There, there I actually are, love are, you, are you done with it? Oh yeah, I finished it a couple of years ago. It's just been sitting in the foundry, but of course the COVID shut everything down. And, and so, um, that that's one so that's why I'm still in California. But eventually it'll be eventually you'll be eventually it'll go up. I like to do more. I like doing the life-size ones. When I do the little ones, like the fingers are little tiny things, you know, and wow, this was so great because I mean you got a full-size hand to work with. It was uh, yeah, I'd like to do some more of those. So when COVID's over, there will be some sort of event where they will erect the Bobby Gibbs sculpture sculpture in Hopkinton, is that the plan? They'll, yeah, it's bronze. It's in bronze now. It's all bronze, and so they'll put it on a, some kind of, I guess, granite stand that they have there in Hopkinton near the start of the race. Well, we can't wait to see it. It's going to um, be fun. It's going to be great. I'm sure there'll be some sort of ceremony, and and hopefully it'll yeah. be around Boston, the Boston Marathon weekend. Maybe not this year, but you know, a year when everyone can gather okay. and. I hope so. I don't know yeah. like when that's going to be, but yeah. yeah. That would be great. So what's your running look like? Um, 
since you ran Boston three times, you've run it a few more times. And what was that like for you? And what's your running look like now? Are you still getting out there and running? Yeah, I still am running an hour or more a day, pretty much. And um, I run a couple of, I think I ran for my 20th anniversary in 1986 and uh, I had trained for that and and then a couple of days before the race I was carrying uh, carrying my son up the back stairs and I pulled my hamstring and I thought oh god this is terrible I, I ran it anyway with a pulled hamstring but it was not good <laughs> I, I've run it a couple more times the last time I ran it was in 2001 and I ran it to raise money for research in neurodegenerative diseases. And uh, again, I had a, I had bronchitis. I had a really bad flu. I came down because uh, I had been on all these programs on television and so forth, and talking about uh, ALS and, and uh, research and so forth. And so I had to run it. I mean, it was here. It is, and I was sick as a dog. I was really sick. I could hardly breathe. And I I ran it. And again, I didn't do, <laughs> you know, it took me a long time. There's a strong head, headwind. And um, I got, I was running with a guy, uh, a, a friend of mine, and he was a gentleman. I mean, he could have walked at the speed I was going at the, towards the end. And I got up to the top of uh, Heartbreak Hill and then I, did, I really, I couldn't breathe. I literally couldn't breathe. And so I got on the medical bus and the medical bus took us all the way back to Wellesley. And then it came along, picked up runners who were dropped out all the way. But I get back to the top of Heartbreak Hill. And by then this cramp had released. I was, I kind of leaned over the seat in front of me and it had released so I could breathe again. And I said, stop the bus. I want to get out. I'm going to finish this race. <laughs> oh. He stops the bus and I, I get out and this woman, <clears throat> Rebecca Wolf, uh, sees me and she ascertains my condition. And <laughs> she's in her jeans. She had been, I, you know, she just one of the crew, but she was a runner. I mean, she was a runner. So she, she jumped off the bus after, uh, after me and we ran by, <laughs> from there all the way to the finish in Boston. By the time I came down Boylston Street. It was like the tail end of the race. There were paper cups everywhere, paper cups everywhere. And there were two huge orange street sweepers. You know, it just starting. They went rum, rum, rum. So coming down the, the vile stretch, and I got these two street sweepers on every side of me. And I'm thinking, you know, that phrase, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I was, like, yeah. I was, I was killing myself laughing. I said, she and I were just laughing. I'm running down that last thing, laughing away with these street sweepers coming through. That that was the last Boston Marathon I run. I mean, it's still somewhere in the back of my mind that maybe you know, when I'm 90 years old, I'll run it again. But I don't. I don't know. It's a lot of work to train up for a marathon like that. We love that you're, you know, this passion that you've had from, from literally from when you were two years old and out running and connecting <laughs> with nature and the passion that 
and determination at, that drove you to run the Boston Marathon when, you know, people were afraid that your uterus was going to fall out. If you, if you <laughs> right. But that same passion that you still have today for, for, for all of these, you know, these ideas uh-huh. that you have, this, this inspiration that you have artistically and scientifically and legally, everything is, is really, um, it, it's just so um, indicative of us and it's- so illustrative of why you have made such a mark in, in this it's world. Big, it's, just- it's bigger. I mean, I have a vision of how the world can be. I can see how the world can be, and it can be a fantastic world for everybody. And, and uh, you know, we just have to figure out how to get there. That's, that's how I, I always say, if we could all just run together, we'd have a much better, we'd have a much better world and, and respect for each other. And I think that's, Beautiful. And we look forward to um, the the statue being erected in Hopkinton, and we hope to be there to see that because that we think is is really fitting and um, and just it's long overdue. And unfortunately, COVID's gotten in the way of, of it it's actually so happening. But we would we we hope to be there. And really, we are just so appreciative of your time and your sharing your positive energy. It, it feels good, and we know that our listeners listening to this are going to feel good and be inspired. And hopefully, somebody can connect with you and, and help you implement these ideas and take the business side of it. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, anyway, it's been really, really nice meeting you guys. Thank and, you, Bobby. Uh, so thank you, Bobby. You. Well, thank you guys. You guys are, are great. Take thank care. You. Have, have a great meeting and we hope to see you in, in Boston soon. Yeah, as soon as the COVID thing <laughs> yep. goes away. <laughs> take, take care. care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.